0: Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, leading experts Gareth Morgan of NYU Langone Health in New York, Francesco Mora of the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center in Miami, and Leo Rasch from the University of Würzburg in Germany explore genomics in multiple myeloma in 2022, focusing on key areas such as questions raised by immunotherapy, changing risk stratification, and the success of immunotherapies in mouse models.
1: Hello, uh, my name's Gareth Morgan. Uh, I'm here in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, at uh, the Myeloma 2022 meeting. And I'm with two good colleagues, uh, Leo Rascher and Francesco Mara. And uh, we've just been in the, the genomics session. So I'd just like to, to ask you, Leo, what, what did you think of the session, and what did you think the take-home message was?
0: Oh, this session was great, and so, but, it's difficult to have a good take home message because we like diving deeper into all the certain subtypes of myeloma about the um, etiological events um, leading to the first myeloma cell, all the subgroups. Um, We talk about the evolutionary pathways which eventually lead to relapsed refractory disease. However, all this data is uh, somewhat collected before the era of immunotherapy, and is, uh, as we have discussed, um, in the context of unknown treatments. Yeah, so uh, it's, it certainly, was certainly a very important um, session, and I think here what I liked uh, most was the, uh, the studies which had been done on mice because here we start to answer these questions, what is happening when we treat these mice with immunotherapies and what is the genomic or the link between genomic and success of immunotherapies? So can I take that question, which I think is a good question,
1: and ask uh, Francesco what he thinks about, so do you think immunotherapy will totally change how we risk stratify a patient?
2: short answer is yes, as every treatment, uh, like uh, when bortezomib was introduced uh, Mm -hmm. more than 10 years ago, the risk changed. So
1: did it, really?
2: (laughs) Well, the the point is that uh, what emerged, I think one of the take-off messages, which again, is not a real take-off message, it's like a question is, are we able to define a risk? And we are able to define with what we have today, Mm -hmm. what we have actually Yesterday, because most of the classification are based on technology and genomic or clinical features defined many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is yes, we can kind of define who is a risk, who is not. Uh, there are two big limitations. The first is that what we define as a risk is a group of patients. It's not the individual risk. So these are relative risk, meaning if the patient comes tomorrow in your in uh, your office, you can say, you are ISS3, so you are at high risk. But you know that the fraction of those patients will have very long outcome. And so that's a relative risk of 100 patients like you, 80% will progress in in two years. That's not the individualized risk. And the second is that all these scores that we have today completely ignore treatment and completely ignore all the genomic informations that you, like the double E, the amplification one Q and others have reported so far. So I think we need to get and we are working on it to, dev- to, ask, to include these two important aspects into the high risk and the individual prediction, we have software now to do this. These are like machine learning, artificial intelligence that actually work on that purpose, moving from relative to absolute risk. And for treatment, we just need to collect better the data. And you know, COMPASS is one of these efforts where treatment is included, but never used, for example. So I
1: I kind of agree and disagree with with both of you in in some way, (laughs) and it's always like a a nuanced view in, in a way, in that extremely high proliferative disease with P53 mutations and everything we know about cell cycle progression I think that's still going to be a poor prognostic group, even in the context of the best immunotherapy. And so we heard some more data about trying to define poor prognostic disease or identify disease earlier. So how do you think we're gonna use that information in the clinic?
0: Well, so I agree that high so high proliferation will remain a risk marker even mm-hmm. in the era of immunotherapy. And I think it's uh, your great work showing us that a single cell could drive relapse. Yeah, so if it. this single cell has high proliferation rate, then it will pop up very early or faster mm-hmm. than others. So high proliferation will remain um, a risk marker. However, if you have a treatment which is able to eradicate 100% of the cells, then high risk is overcome, right? And this is what we are, maybe not, not now, but in lymphoma, we are already there. And I, so that's why I think at some level, high risk will not remain the category in the future when we have therapies which are able to eradicate myeloma and to cure a significant proportion of patients.
1: So what, so what about, I'm not sure which one of you it was that showed the beautiful slide that a single cell can lead to a relapse 10 years after treatment. And I think it was you, late. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And that's why I think dormancy, this is the real bottle, or this is the real issue we are facing. Because the, if there is a dormant cell somewhere in the bone marrow or in an organ, we do not know where these dormant cells are. And these cells, is not being killed, for example, by a CAR T cell, or we just do not know whether immunotherapies are able to kill dormant cells. So because all of these novel immunotherapies, they relate to the induction of apoptosis. So is apoptosis something a dormant cell is able to undergo?
2: To follow up to your question, I agree with Leo, and also with you. I think that there is a group of patients that whatever you do for... The genomic and immune settings they have right now—it's really hard to induce remission or a sustained remission. So these are what they call the ultra-high risk, which is not very original. But these patients are the ones that are not even included in clinical trials because they don't match the standard. They have kidney failure; they are too frail, and so we don't even know exactly what these patients are because they are not even included. Uh, in So you need to look retrospective cords to really detect those patients. And in our experience with lymphoma, for example, we're a little bit more uh, knowledgeable about how immunotherapy works. And we did a study that was presented at ASH on genome and CAR-T, And what we found is that the known genomic features that are associated with poor prognosis, high risk in lymphomas, aggressive lymphomas, are not prognostic after CUT-T, But new features that people don't even know existed before in, in lymphoma, or probably they knew but they never considered, are highly prognostic. Like presence of chromoclipsin. No one never heard about in lymphomas probably or like uses for prognostic factors. Most of the patients progress. ApoBEC, all the patients progress. So there are like features the risk the idea is that the risk change according to the treatment, which is not original per se, but I think it's what we're gonna see multiple meloma. Introducing earlier immunotherapy or later, you will see different markers coming up. Like Leo showed, BLLE loss of BCMA is not a recurrent mechanism, it was published in natural medicine, it was clonal, so that was for sure a, a, a mechanism of resistance, one case out of hundreds, but that's an event that doesn't exist in any newly diagnosed myeloma patient. So the new treatment require new way of thinking and new approaches to understand.
1: So what I think you're trying to say and concluding is that there's a continued need to do these molecular studies. It's not all done and finished, That as we introduce new treatments, you need to explore the mechanisms of resistance and relapse, and only by doing that are we going to be able to tailor the treatment to individual patients. So. Thank you for that. And um, yeah, we'll finish there.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.